You are listening to the Climbing Advocate Podcast. I am your host, Peter Horgan. On this podcast, I'll be chatting with folks who care deeply about the climbing environment to discuss the advocacy work that's happening beyond the crag. My aim is to connect more climbers to the important work that these advocates are doing day in and day out. From the small local crags, to the nation's iconic landscapes, and to the offices of our nation's capital, no crag is too big or too small to not have its interests represented. This show is brought to you in partnership with Access Fund. Since 1991, Access Fund has been keeping the crags, boulders, and alpine environments around the country conserved and cared for. Support Access Fund by visiting accessfund.org and by supporting your local climbing organization. Hey everybody, welcome to the latest installment of the Climbing Advocate Podcast, episode 20, the big 2-0. feels like quite the milestone. I remember saying that on episode 15, but this one really feels like feels like a nice milestone, uh, reaching another another decade of sorts, you know. Episode 20, a conversation with Mark Kenyon. Mark is an author and podcaster. He hosts the podcast Wired to Hunt, and you could probably assume based on the name of his podcast, he is a dedicated hunter and angler and just a staunch conservationist all around. One thing Mark is not, he's not a climber. First non-climber interview that I've done on the show. And one of the main reasons why I wanted to have him on today is because he's not a climber for that exact reason. One of the main themes, or if not the main theme that we talked about throughout the episode was the notion of public lands uniting us, uniting us all. No matter what kind of user you are of public lands, we're all in this together. We're all on the same side. We can all fight for the same things and show up in a big way when it counts the most. And we talk about this theme a lot throughout the episode. And we cover a number of topics um, throughout the conversation. Starting with episode 20, I'm going to start doing some expanded show notes and breaking and breaking down each episode. Uh, you know, I'm sure a lot of you have seen on other podcasts, they have the times that you talk about what throughout the episode. So I, I, said, I decided to start doing this now. So as I was working through this, like marking down the times we kind of change topics, I have a whole page full of different things that we touch on. So there was so much to unpack in here. It was awesome. But just to consolidate a little bit for you, we start off with a nice history and background on Mark. We jump into talking about his podcast, Wired to Hunt, uh, why he started it, how it's grown into what it is today. It's not just about hunting. There's a whole theme of conservation on there. He's had many folks on there that are influential in the conservation, public lands, advocacy world, folks such as Steve Ornella and Hal Herring. So we talk about those those guys and what they have brought to Mark and how they have served as a model for him for being a, a, a strong advocate for all things public lands and private. And speaking of private, we move into his personal conservation project that he brought to his home state of Michigan, where he currently resides, his Back 40 project, where him and a couple other guys went in on this property to for hunting, but it was more than just that. He, they t- they've taken a very holistic, well-rounded approach to improve upon this property for, for the wildlife, for the vegetation, for the people using it. It's so cool. They have a whole mini series on YouTube about it. I would recommend checking it out. Uh, it's just one another thing he could add to his extensive resume of impressive accomplishments. And speaking of that, he is also, like I said, he's an author. He wrote a book called That Wild Country, and it is one of the best books I've probably ever read. It's, it was on the Access Fund's 
advocate reading list, and I cannot recommend it enough. If you're not totally familiar with the history of public lands and where things started, where things have been, and how we are where we are today, this book is for you. He distills it down so well. It's not a textbook. He he goes through the history of public lands in a very palatable way. You can get through it without having to focus too hard and gives you everything you need to understand where we've been and where we are now. And not only that, that's about 50% of the book. The other 50% is him talking about his personal journeys, personal stories and adventures out west. He goes through a number of different amazing landscapes out west. So in like one chapter, he'll talk about his personal adventures, and then he'll marry that with some historical context of our public lands in the next chapter, and they flip-flops between the two. It's awesome. Cannot recommend it enough. If you haven't read it, get on it. You're missing out. Check it out. That wild country available pretty much anywhere. We pretty much wrap up the episode, again, talking about this theme of public lands uniting us and joining forces and how all these different user groups come together to represent what we value most and how we've been so resilient in the past and been so successful in the past. So I I won't give too much away. It's it's awesome. Uh, Mark is a wealth of information. And we, as you know, per usual, we wrap up with some tools and resources that us climbers can consult to keep up to speed on what's going on right now and what we can do to get involved. You know, it's, it's important to stay on high alert even though it's tough, we can get so bogged down in so many different issues. But we, yeah, we jumped through all that, and it's, it's, it was such a pleasure to chat with Mark. It was, it was awesome. Uh, I was so impressed with his book. I was like, I, I need to connect with this guy. So it was an awesome conversation. I'm glad people like him are on our side. So let me jump out of the way here and introduce you to Mark Kenyon. Enjoy. So yeah, you've been traveling, traveling a little bit uh, out west. Yeah, yeah, we uh, we drove across the country a few weeks ago, and now we're out here just west of the Tetons for a couple months. So it, nice, uh, that's so cool. Out here. Yeah, what a great opportunity to be able to do that, huh? Yeah, we're, we're fortunate to be able to do that, and still live part of the year close to the family, but part of the year out here doing some things we love. So it works out pretty well. Yeah, good deal. You currently reside in Michigan. Was it near Ann Arbor area when we first talked? So I worked in Ann Arbor for four years um, when I was at Google. That's where I worked. Mm -hmm. Um, But I grew up on the west side of the state. So that's the opposite side of the state I grew up on. Uh, And then, yeah, after college, worked in Ann Arbor for four years and then now live in south central Michigan. Gotcha. That's right. That's right. Well, yeah, uh, just kind of diving in here. the Midwest isn't particularly known for its expansive tracts of public lands, but Michigan, I'd say, in my opinion, is certainly an exception to that rule, maybe more so in the UP than the lower peninsula. I spent a lot of time up in the UP, but uh, that hasn't really stopped you from exploring everywhere around the West, and you're currently you know, uh, buying a house out West, you're in the West right now, and bring in, also bringing just conservation closer to home. Uh, in Michigan, which we'll touch on a little bit more here in just a little bit. But the big reason why I wanted to have you on the show today is that you're not a climber. You're a hunter, an avid hunter and angler. And I was wondering if that's been something that's been a lifelong passion of yours as you grow up doing that. Yeah, you know, I I definitely did. I grew up in uh, a family that, you know, all of the outdoor, all of the 
non-work, any recreation we were doing, anything outside of uh, work and school was outside related. So the outdoor recreation activities around us in Western Michigan were boating, fishing, hiking, camping, and hunting. My family, my, my grandpa, bought a small cabin on 40 acres in the northwestern part of the state back in the mid-80s. And that was surrounded on two sides, two and a half sides by public land, tens of thousands of acres of state land up there in the northern part of the state. So I grew up kind of with that being my playground. Um, I never knew anything different. I just kind of knew, oh, there's public land and it's it's a great fun place to go explore. And and so we did that. We did a lot of, of everything I just listed. Uh, we traveled a little bit. Um, every year we would go to a family member's cottage in the Adirondack Mountains in New York. Yep. So spent sure. a lot of time hiking around there and playing in the lakes and canoeing down rivers. And then we did take two Western National Park trips when I was really young. Uh, went to Mount Rainier and Olympic National Parks when I was seven-ish. And then went back and hit Glacier National Park when I was about 10. And those were really formative too because even though I was very young, um, they stuck with me in my imagination and just kind of, there was this latent thing in the back of my mind for years and years and years that, that was so incredible. I want to go back and do those things. Um, but I just, I didn't have the, the money or experience or time or whatever it was when I was 15, 16, 17 years old to do that yet. Um, but yeah, all those years was doing local things there in Michigan. Grew up learning to deer hunt, learning to fish. Um, like I said, we didn't go to Disney World. We didn't go to uh, <laughs> New York City or Chicago. We went camping. And so those are the things I love. And it wasn't until uh, after college that I started going off and doing some some bigger, wilder things on my own. It kind of took me to that to that next step, which eventually led me to where I am now. Yeah, it's awesome. It definitely laid a nice foundational groundwork for your work that you're doing now. I, I would maybe make the assumption that you know, conservation probably wasn't at the forefront of your mind or the concept of what conservation was, wasn't really on your radar until later in life, maybe around those college years when you started doing those bigger explorations? Yeah. You know, I always loved these places and in these things, just always had a deep, deep love for wild animals, wild places, nature, the outdoors, always loved it. But I think at that time I was still just a user, just um, someone who got out there and, and enjoyed my time. I had not gotten to thinking about how we got these places or why we have these places and these things that hadn't crossed my mind yet. It wasn't until probably just outside of college, really, um, when I started just, uh, I don't, I'm not exactly sure what it was, if it was the fact that I was exploring ways of trying to make a career out of the outdoors. But at this time, I just completely dove in headfirst into all things, hunting, fishing, outdoors reading everything learning everything i was just consumed with with um just becoming as educated as i possibly could on all these things and it was during that time period early 20s when i started reading some things i started challenging some of my assumptions which opened my eyes a little bit to some of the whys around what we do and the hows of how we got these things so that's when i started thinking about this and when conservation um, all of a sudden leapt to the forefront for me when it went from being a uh, how do I go and have the best possible time I can have up in these places to all of a sudden, how do I make sure these places and these things are around in the future and healthy and in good shape and accessible. Uh, and then that just continued to grow and grow and grow over my twenties. 
as I, you know, went from just being someone who's passionate about this stuff to someone who, whose life completely revolved around it. And that, you know, led me then to all these different projects that I've started now that are outside of just hunting and fishing, but bigger public land and conservation related projects. Um, and now as a father to two now, it's at a whole different level when you go from just the selfish ideas of trying to keep these things around for myself or my friends to now thinking about what does this mean for my kids and, and other kids out there? And what does this mean for 50 years from now, 100 years from now? we have an obligation and that's, that's a lot more personal now. 100%. Yeah. I remember you mentioning in, uh, in your book talking about like that statement conserving or, you know, preserving for future generations. And that really hit home with you once you had your first kid and now it's, it really resonates and it's hard for me to maybe fully appreciate that since I don't have kids myself, but yeah, I, I totally understand how that could take that to the next level for sure. You mentioned, I'm going to back up just a minute here. You mentioned something about assumptions uh, when you started reading some more and diving into all this conservation stuff. Uh, it challenged some of your assumptions. Could you expand on those assumptions a little bit? Well, yeah, I think there's a, there's a lot. Um, I think one assumption that a lot of us have at young ages is that this stuff was is just here for us to use and it always has been and it always will be, whether that be a national forest, whether that be the park down the road from your house, whether that be the crag you like to climb, whether it be the deer I like to watch and hunt. Um, I think as young people, it's, it's easy not to think about, you know, how fragile a lot of that stuff is and how tenable it is and, and how, you know, it's not there by accident is what I started realizing. It's not there just by happenstance. It hasn't always been there. Um, these things have been threatened in various ways over, over the years. Some of these things that we're talking about animals um, in the, 1800s, early 1900s, a lot of our wildlife populations reached really, really dangerous levels. We had a lot of, um, a lot of poor choices were made during that part of our, of our country's history that led to us nearly losing a lot of the incredible animal species we have. And fortunately, there were some people that, that kind of caught it the last second and realized, hey, we need to change our tune. We hit, these things are not um, infinite. We need to really think about how to live with animals and maybe use animals or hunt animals or whatever it is in some kind of more sustainable way. And so, and so that's just one example of, um, something that I came to realize during that period that I, that I didn't realize from an earlier age. I think there's, there's just so many different examples. There's that you could look at just the way we use these places. Um, and how I think a lot of us early on have just a me, me, me focus, which is how can I get the most out of this for myself? How can I go and bag the most peaks? How can I go and, you know, raft down as many rivers as I want? How can I get out there and, and have the most successful hunt? Um, and it's all about your experience. And again, I think as you start diving into this deeper, you start realizing that, Hey, this is, this is a collective thing here. These resources, whether it's the land, it's the animals, it's the water, these are shared resources, shared privileges. And so that was something that I really had a, a coming of age, I guess, where I, realize that I need to kind of step outside of the tunnel vision of what this stuff means just for me and think about what it means for everybody else. And when you start thinking about what this means for the collective, how do we do what's the right thing for the collective? It, it ends up being usually the better thing for each of us individually too in the long run, but it takes a little bit of uh, self-awareness, I guess, which took me a little bit of time to, to gather. Um, 
but yeah, I, you know, over the last 10, 15 years, I've had some epiphanies like that. I've had more and more experiences in these places. I've learned more and more about how, you know, vulnerable public lands are, how vulnerable our environment is. Um, and once you start sensing a little bit and, and seeing real-time examples of these things you love being threatened or disappearing or being damaged, um, it becomes really personal and very uh, visceral, I guess, when you see something, I don't know, like like Bears Ears National Monument. You see a national monument that is slashed dramatically all of a sudden, which seems, wow, how could that possibly happen? That is the kind of moment where you realize, oh, wow, these things are, we can't take these things for granted. Nothing's guaranteed. Um, it's going to require us fighting for it. I love it. Yeah, we'll, we'll definitely, uh, I think, wrap up on some of what you just said here at the end. So I want to jump into uh, your podcast and, and your own personal media. And you mentioned earlier that you had worked for Google. What were you doing for them? So out of college, I took a job there. Um, essentially, my title was an online marketing strategist. I had a, a roster of retail companies that I was their liaison, uh, helping them market their products using Google's online tools. So I worked with people like Burton, uh, Moose Jaw, Tommy Hilfiger, a bunch of different online retailers like that. And basically was kind of educating and helping them use um, our search ads, our YouTube ads, our display ads, and, and kind of helping them develop those those tactics and strategies to be successful from a business perspective. Gotcha. So yeah, I was doing that full-time out of college. And at the same time, I started my own website on the on the side, trying to build up my own thing within the uh, hunting and outdoor space where I was, you know, was really passionate about about wanting to do something like that for the rest of my life. Right, and now you're you're doing just that. You made the full transition out of Google into now your own entrepreneurial track here, starting Wired to Hunt, the name of your podcast and media. Did you feel there was something missing in the hunting world, like a niche that you wanted to fill? with your show or just in the conservation field in general? I know a lot of your materials about, about uh, whitetail deer. Yeah. You know, when it first started, it was one thing and it slowly transitioned into different and broader things. Um, but, but early on it was just, I had this itch that I wanted to scratch and I couldn't do it in the normal ways because when I started the website, I was actually working in New York city at an internship and felt locked in. I felt claustrophobic, couldn't get out into nature the way I usually did. And, uh, and so I thought, well, maybe I could start a website and write about some of the stuff I love to do. And that'd be a way to kind of scratch that itch. And then fast forward a year later, now I'm working full-time for Google and I'm working at their headquarters there in Mountain View, California, which is just South of San Francisco. And again, I felt the same way. I felt stuck in the city, couldn't get out and do the things I loved. I was, um, just missing a lot of that stuff. And so I dove back into that website. And so early on, it was just wanting to explore this topic of what I, that I loved and, and, and that core thing for me at that point, and still to this point too, is white-tailed deer hunting, which is the, the, the main large animal in a lot of America that, uh, that you can watch and hunt. And so white-tailed deer hunting was my first kind of love. And so that was what Wired Hunt was about. I decided I was going to dive into it and try to just just express my experiences, share my experiences, and share my learning processes. I was trying to learn more about hunting, learn more about deer, learn more about you know how to how to do this whole thing. And so for for a lot of years, that's what Wired to Hunt was all about. It was very how to focused. 
Um, and, you know, it was also following my personal journey, I guess, as well as a young person trying to figure all this stuff out. And over the course of the years, I, I slowly built that audience of folks that were following Wired to Hunt the website. And I started writing freelance for magazines and then also started getting involved with some uh, conservation organizations within the hunting space, particularly on the deer side. Uh, consulted for one and did some other stuff on the side for a couple of others, which then eventually all built to me having a, a kind of portfolio of experiences that I could lean on and, and was able to quit from Google and go full time with Wired Hunt. And and I think, you know, to you, to one of your questions, you said, what was the hole I was trying to fill? Yeah. As I mentioned earlier, it was just kind of selfish. It was just, this is the stuff I'm interested in. This is the stuff I've, you know, kind of want to dive into myself and then I will put it out there for the rest of the world and see if anybody else feels the same way. Um, that was the case in the beginning as we got on and on years four or five, six, seven, closer to where we are now. Um, I started realizing that I wanted to take more of a leadership role in the direction that the hunting community is going. Um, I was seeing things that I did like, and I was seeing a lot of things that I didn't like. Um, just like any community out there, just like the climbing community or the fishing community or the mountain biking community, there's, there's good apples and bad apples, right? Sure. And, and I was seeing really serious negative consequences of the bad apples in the hunting community. When a spotlight gets shown on, uh, a really egregious activity or act, and that shines a poor light on everything. And, I was discouraged by this, disheartened by this, and I thought, you know what, I just I need to continue to find new ways to shine a positive light on this because uh, 99% of the folks out there that are hunting or fishing are doing it in a sustainable, respectful, managed way. They're doing it in a way that fosters a deeper connection with these places and these animals. They're doing it in such a way uh, that it you know brings more people outside and connects people with nature and you know helps lead to healthy ecosystems, healthy wildlife populations. Um, But when you see some jerk post something on Facebook and it gets posted all over the place, and if you don't have any context with hunting and you see that, you think, wow, these are a bunch of jerks that don't care about any of this stuff. Um, We should get rid of it all. And that was something that that was, like I said, discouraging. So I was wanting to direct more and more of my contact, excuse me, my content, in a way that we could try to lead by example and showcase positive ways to talk about this stuff, positive ways to share our experiences. Um, and also, you know, challenge my fellow hunters and anglers to try to learn more about all those things I mentioned earlier, the hows, the whys, why do we still have these things around? How do we make sure that that happens? Um, why does something like public land matter? What kind of threats are there right now that are challenging our future opportunities to do the things we want to do? And so that's where Wired Hunt has transitioned a little bit, where it went from purely how-to hunt to now, yeah, there's still a lot of how-to stuff. Um, There's still a strong emphasis on trying to help educate new hunters and help people learn how to have a great time out there and do it in a responsible and effective way. Um, But I'm also adding more and more of this this focus on, um, I guess, these deeper issues, these slightly more intangible issues, but very important for the future. So, so that's kind of where things have gone and it continues to evolve. I continue to evolve. And, um, I guess that's part of the fun of it. Oh, it's so cool. Yeah. I, I 
I appreciate the challenge that hunters deal with, this paradox of what hunting is. You care so deeply about these animals, but you're also out there, you know, shooting them for, yes. for you know, for good reason. I mean, you're, you're providing sustenance for yourself, right? Yep. So having to communicate the, the strong ethics that you all have for these lands and the animals on them is, is a big task. And I, I, I tip my hat to all you guys that have to do this. Yeah, well, thank you. And I appreciate, you know, the openness to it too. It's, it's, I can, I can, it's funny if I can step outside of my own history and out of my experience. And if I try to look at hunting from the outside and, you know, confront what you just mentioned, like the ultimate paradox of hunting is what you just described, which Mm -hmm. is that we love these animals. We love these places, but our goal is to go out there and, and shoot and kill one. And (laughs) that is, it can be hard to reckon with. And, from the outside, for sure, even internally as a hunter, it can sometimes be, you know, it's a challenging thing and it's hard to convey how you can balance those two things um, without having some kind of experience or that without having some kind of context. But that's that's something we try to do. And it's it's a really powerful thing. It's a, it's it, there's a reason why um, there's a reason why a lot of people that take a step into this experience um, stick with it for the rest of their lives it's it's a it's a powerful way of engaging with who we are as humans it's a powerful way of engaging with the natural world it is very human it is what we have been doing for tens of thousands of years and um in a day and age where we are getting more and more divorced from the physical world and from nature we're getting so separated from it in a lot of ways uh this is a very visceral way of connecting with it and um and it, it, it taps into something that's deep in us. And uh, if you can do it in, in a careful, managed, responsible way, um, I think it's a pretty great thing. Yeah, amazing, 100%. What are some of the biggest lessons or takeaways that you've uh, learned from people, from the people that you've had on your show? People like Hal Herring and, and Steve, yeah. uh, people who are you know, very outspoken advocates in this field. What are, the, what are some of those biggest takeaways you've, you've gotten? Well, I think those guys like like Steve Rennell and Hale Herring, uh, Randy Newbert, other conservation leaders within the hunting and fishing community, um, they've just inspired me and and I, I think have given me something to point towards as far as what it takes to make a difference um, and the fact that it's not easy in that it's not convenient in that it's not always going to be popular. Um, you're going to sometimes rub people the wrong way. You're going to sometimes have to stand out on a limb and challenge the norms, challenge the status quo. Um, it's, it's not always the easy route, but I do think it is the route, at least for me, that, um, that is most fulfilling because the things that have now, I think, you know, as I alluded to earlier, what mattered to me early on was, oh, I wanted to have a great hunt. Oh, I want to have a great adventure. Um, I still want to have all those things, but now the bigger picture stuff is, is becoming more important, which is I want to make a difference. Mm-hmm. I want to do something that's actually going to stand the test of time. And so those guys have, have show, have given me a model for how to do that and how to, you know, know when to butt heads and know when to reach a hand across the way and shake hands and say, you know, agree to disagree or, Hey, maybe I can learn something from you or maybe I was wrong. Um, they've given me a great way to, um, Uh, I guess, as I said, a great model to look to. All of those guys have been instrumental in just laying a foundation for me as far as the history of conservation within this community, as far as the history of advocacy, um, both the good and the bad. Um, Those guys are students 
of both the environmental movement, the conservation movement, and hunting and fishing. They, they know the history, and I think that's something that I've taken and, and tried to do myself because if, if you don't know where you came from, you're, how do you know where to go? And so I've really tried to, to dive into the history of all these things, whether it's public lands or hunting and fishing or just wildlife management. Um, all of those things uh, are, are now fascinating to me. And I continue to try to, to dive in more there because there's a lot of lessons to be taken from, you know, what we've done over the last several hundred years here in America. Yeah, of course. I mean, you just mentioned a few words, lessons, learning, and the, what's just stuck out to me the most was what you said about being a student. I mean, being a student of the game, being a student of, uh, of your sport and learning from these other folks that, that sit closely to you and also reaching across the aisle, learning from them, opening yourself to learning opportunities and expressing humility when you might be wrong. That's, that's an amazing point of view to have and, and take away from everything you've been learning over the years. Speaking of Steve, uh, I want to jump into this real quick. We could probably have a whole podcast episode on your Back 40 project, but I think this is so cool. I followed, I followed a little bit of the mini series so far, but uh, could you explain to people about what, what's going on here? You've conserved a plot of land in Michigan for hunting and to improve upon the land. And yeah, it's it's super neat project. And my first question with it is, it's 64 acres, but the name of it's Back 40, the Back 40. Could you explain where the name came from? Yeah. <laughs> so, and this might be something that's just kind of um, utilized in the hunting community. I guess I'm not sure about that. But oftentimes when you talk about like your backyard, like ah, I'm just going to go and work on the back 40 is what people often refer to just their whatever's behind the house, your little piece behind the house or close by. I think that's probably because a lot, of, especially in the eastern United States, a lot of the properties and tracts have been broken into either 40 or 80 acre tracts. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's just kind of ubiquitous. So the back 40 is like the ubiquitous generic term for your section, your little bit of land, whatever your plot of land is, we kind of call it the back 40. So this project is, is sort of representative of a situation that a lot of other people find themselves across the country um, in the hunting community. That is having a little piece of land or wanting to have a little piece of land and trying to make it, you know, as, as good as it possibly could be for the things you love. And so for hunters, usually the first thing is, Hey, I want to make this as good as possible for hunting. And so there's a lot of media out there right now, which focuses on trying to take whatever land you have and, you know, make it better for, for deer and for hunting and all that. But we wanted to take a slightly different approach, a little bit, a little bit more of a big picture approach because, we wanted to look at not just how do you make this thing better for hunting, but really how do you make the environment healthier? How do you make this entire ecosystem healthier, more um, in tune with with how it naturally was before man's um, footprint on it? There's a lot of within the environmental community, within the public land advocacy community, a lot is focused on what you can do on public land, how you can preserve things on public land, public waters. Um, a lot of the a lot of attention is put there, but there are tens, hundreds of millions of acres of private land out there that is still relatively open, still relatively wild, um, in some cases still relatively healthy, but in need of care, in need of stewardship. And so our idea was, hey, there are a research show that I'm going to get this number wrong off the top of my head right now, but somewhere like 300 some million acres of land across the United States, private land across the United States that is managed or used in some way by hunters. So if we ha- if there's that large a chunk of land 
And for context, there's about 640 million acres of public land, federal public land in the United States. So almost half of that amount of land that private landowners have that's used for hunting. What if we could somehow try to do a better job of managing and protecting those lands, just like we try to do on public lands? Um, so our idea was try to use the back 40 as a as an example of how you might try to do that on a small piece of land in Michigan. So we wanted to, yes, we want to fulfill our, our goals and our dreams as hunters by having a quality hunting property, but also make this a paradise for all wildlife, not just the wildlife we want to hunt, but also the bees, the birds, um, the rabbits, the squirrels, uh, the waterfowl, yes, the deer, the turkeys, everything, the native plant life, um, the soil. How could we dive deep into a small place and learn it in an intimate way and, and try to give back? Because I think that's a big step that I personally have taken and a lot of people do, where you, you go from having a very transactional, one-way relationship with the outdoors Um and this, this is, I think this is the case actually for all sorts of outdoor users. In the case of hunting, it's, it's very obvious when you hunt and you, you, you take an animal, you literally take that animal off the landscape for your own and, and you bring it home and you eat it. It's very transactional in that kind of way. Um, but I think it's a, it's, it's a natural thing. I also think it's, it's, a, it's a natural transition and evolution and a powerful one when you go from that transactional relationship with the outdoors to then a, a, participatory relationship or a steward type relationship where you're giving back to. So we take from the land, but we also need to give back um, and try to balance those scales. That's something I'm constantly trying to think about. I've, th- these places, these animals, it's given me so much. How do I make sure that I give back just as much, if not more? And so we're, we're trying to foster that same type of that same type of idea on private land with this Back 40 project. So showing how you can do that how you can have this intimate relationship with a small piece of land and the wildlife and plant life out there and, and still do the fun thing you want to do, um, but also do it in a way that uh, has a bigger impact. So that's what the project's about. That's what this show has been about. The first season is on the Mediator YouTube channel. Um, we're working on the second season of it now, and uh, it's been a great learning experience for me and, and hopefully for everybody that's followed along. Yeah, that's that's so cool. And you brought up the, I think, the most important point here is yeah, participating in your sport is only half the equation. It's being the steward and giving back is the other 50%. Yeah. And yeah, it's, it's extremely important and such a cool project you guys have going on. Um, there's one part of it that I wanted to ask about. In the very first episode, you, you talk about giving the whole thing back. Like once you're done, just stewarding it and bringing it up to the, the level you, you want. What is your vehicle or mechanism for giving it back? Are you going to like retain ownership and just put it under easement or how does, what's that look like? We have a plan in place to make sure that, uh, this property will, we won't be owning it anymore. We're going to, we are going to give it away, but we're doing so in such a way that it will be uh, taken care of and managed into the future with these same goals that I've discussed in mind. Um, and making sure it's, it's, it's both positive for the animals and plant life out there, but then also for people in this community so we can learn from it, so it can uh, be a wild and healthy ecosystem uh, into perpetuity. Well, if, if you haven't uh, proven yourself enough yet through your podcast, your media, your conservation efforts in the Back 40 Project, you're also an author. 
And your book is called That Wild Country. I picked it up earlier this year. And Mark, I, I couldn't put this thing down. It was it was incredible. Uh, you did a remarkable job of providing a lot of history about public lands while keeping it lighthearted and easy to digest and understand um, by providing your own experiences, writing about your own personal adventures out west, and then marrying that with historical context around our public lands. It's, it's not just a textbook. There are many books out there that are chock full of great information, but they are dense. And personally, for me, I have to really, I really have to focus on those words in those books, and to, you know, with deliberate attention uh, to, to every word, so I can comprehend everything. And I haven't read a book this fast since I don't, I don't think like sixth or seventh grade when I read Holes by Lewis Sackar in like one day. <laughs> I read this, I read your book in just over a week, which for me is really fast. I know you devour books <laughs> every month, but uh, for me, that's really fast. And yeah, it was, it was just amazing. And now this book is being used in public lands management courses. That's got to be pretty, pretty flattering, huh? Yeah, it was very cool to see that. It's the reaction has been. It's been amazing. I'm, I'm just so, so, so glad and excited that uh, that people are having an experience like you described, because what you just mentioned is exactly the problem I saw, which was that, yes, there is information out there about this stuff, um, but it's it's hard to get through. It's dense. It's textbooks. It's it's dusty historical tomes that your average person just is not going to dive into. If the average person isn't learning this stuff, then we're in a lot of trouble because these places, these public lands, they need advocates and they need informed advocates. And um, and I thought that I think I thought there was an opportunity there to help because I found myself in that same in those same shoes. I found myself as someone who loved these places, but didn't understand the history. Um, I wanted to know more and it was hard to get that stuff without investing, you know, weeks and weeks of study in these tough to read or tough resources. So I thought, well, I need to personally go through this learning experience myself. I see a need out there. I see a very real threat right now, more than ever. Um, this was all going like 2015, 2016, 2017 timeframe when the land transfer movement was really picking up steam and it was, it was becoming very real to me at that point. And I realized how do you, how, how can I learn about this stuff and somehow provide a way that other folks could learn in a way that would be enjoyable, right? I mean, these days there's so many different things pulling at our time and attention, um, not a lot of people are going to spend weeks of their life drudging through something that's boring, not fun when they've got a million other distractions coming in from every direction. So, so that was my goal. I wanted to try to find some way to communicate this stuff in a palatable way. And I figured the best way to do that would be, um, the, the format I ended up on, as you, as you mentioned, which is kind of 50% diving into the history of, of how we got our public lands, the various battles and controversies and people that formed what we have now today. And then um, also then some current events, what's actually happening right now the past couple of years, and then blend that with my own personal stories as I go out and explore these places and, and try to understand them in a more visceral way. So balancing this, this study with the on-the-ground experience um, hopefully provides something that, that, that both is fun and then also kind of illustrates the ideas and concepts in a way that kind of connects not just with your mind, but your heart a little bit. Yeah. Amazing. Well, you, you did a remarkable job of that. And what, what prompted you to start the book with the incident that Melier in, uh, in Oregon with the Bundys and everything? Did you see that as a current state of affairs and just needed to 
springboard the rest of the book off of that. Yeah, I think I think that was the moment when it really hit home for me of how serious this was getting. When that happened, which was it was kind of an eye opener for a lot of the country. A lot of the country was just um, for those that weren't like in these worlds where the public land transfer movement was being talked about for the rest of the world. This kind of put it on their radar. And once this got put on the radar for those people, then then the the efficacy of the policies started getting discussed in a more mainstream way. So you were starting to see people debating on news. Well, these guys are calling for. They're saying that so much of this land is owned by the federal government. Should the federal government really own this land? What are these different things? You saw presidential candidates during the leading to the 2016 election were saying, yeah, I'm in support of this stuff. We, we shouldn't have all this land. We should give it back to the states. We should sell it to private landowners. We should be, um, you know, it's too much big government. There was all this kind of stuff that was picking up some steam. And so it seemed to be like an inflection point during this whole debate. And then it also was just the most attention grabbing moment for me personally when when a bunch of you know armed militia types storm into a federal public land facility and take it over and stay there for weeks on end you know shaking their fists at the rest of the country and saying you know no more big government no more public lands blah 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 it it was just a an oh wow kind of moment and it seemed like a natural way to kick this thing off because it really kind of kicked it off for me yeah i mean this is not the first time that we've seen this sagebrush rebellion type of thing over the years i mean it's happened several times i appreciated that point of view to launch into your book and then making you know putting a pin in that and then starting back from the beginning with tr and john muir and gifford pinchot and everything and kind of moving on from there um yeah, you mentioned climbing climbers multiple times in the book, and that always put a smile on my face every time I saw that. It was really neat, uh, and it made it was on Access Funds Advocate reading list. Uh, your book was so for all of those, all of you who have not read it yet, I cannot recommend it enough. It is it just a, it gives all the information you need to understand where we came from, where we've been, and where we are now. No fluff, no yeah, no dense words or anything it just gives you yeah what exactly what you need so i I really appreciate it appreciated it very much thank you peter and you know something that something that's jumped in my mind which was um important to me as i was writing the book and still now you mentioned that you like there's some mentions of climbers in there and i wanted that this was not a hunting book this wasn't supposed to be a hunting book like a lot of people know me as a hunter that's maybe the biggest thing i do Uh, but i also hike and backpack and raft and canoe and kayak and bike and all these things. I I just love all sorts of types of outdoor recreation. And I thought it was very, very important for this book. This was not a book just for the hunting and fishing community. This is for everybody. These places are for everybody. And I really wanted to write something that would be interesting and palatable for all types. Because if we approach public lands and trying to protect these places just as the hunters is trying to do it, we're not going to be able to achieve the goals we have. And if we approach this just as climbers and we only want to be just working with climbers, we're not going to be able to get the outcomes we're hoping for. And if we do this just as a mountain bike community and we refuse to work with people that use a slightly different kind of whatever mode of transportation, have slightly different viewpoints, we're not going to be able to fight the good fight either. We really need to work as a larger community of people that care for these wild places. Um, because in, in each of our little tiny silos, we just don't have the numbers, 
the influence, but together we are forced to be reckoned with. And, and so I really wanted to try to write a book that'd be of interest to this entire community of which I feel like I'm a part of all of it and also inspire more of that kind of connection. Um, I really wanted to try to help bring together these diverse groups to stand together on, on this topic and many others, because we, we have a lot more in common than we have different. And I think that we would probably enjoy our time out in these places a lot more too, if we could be more welcoming to others and, and learn a little bit too of each other. Yeah, I love it. And we'll, we'll definitely conclude uh, our conversation, touching some more on what you're just talking about, about joining forces. But um, yeah, that, I mean, the whole like impetus for having you on the show today was around this notion, this theme of public lands uniting us. We're not just climbers or bikers or skiers. We're a whole community of different user groups. And I want to highlight a really important piece that I think might get overlooked pretty often. And I think it's, yeah, I just think it's important to note that hunters and anglers, I think, are largely considered to be the original conservationists. And I think it's important to know why that is. Could you put some more color on this and explain why this is? Maybe talk about some landmark conservation policies that happened decades ago to set us up on this track. Yeah, I mean, it, it is something that sometimes gets trotted out there. It, it's, I, I, I like to caution my fellow hunters and anglers not to get too high on our horse and use that as uh, making us feel high and mighty because we certainly <laughs> sure. can't sit on our laurels and just claim that, you know, some people like to claim that hunting is conservation. And I think there's there's truth to that. Um, but oftentimes it needs more. So, so where this comes from a lot of times is when we buy hunting licenses, when we buy hunting equipment, uh, when we spend money on any of these things, there is a tax placed on that, which we voluntarily, decades ago, the hunting and fishing community volunteered to be taxed on these things, which allowed then a fund to be created, which is the Pittman-Robertson Fund, which uh, goes to fund a lot of our wildlife work today. A lot of the access initiatives, uh, wildlife protection and management initiatives, much of the stuff that funds what's going on in our public lands is paid for by hunters and anglers. So there's a certain sense like, oh, hey, we're paying for this stuff through this excise tax. Um, give us a pat in the back. And, uh, and sure, <laughs> yes, I guess we can take a little pat in the back, but I think that much more is, is needed. Um, so, so that said, um, when People talk about how hunters are maybe the original conservationists. I think that a lot of that stems from some of those early people within the public land and wildlife management um, movements back in the late 1800s, early 1900s. People like Theodore Roosevelt, people like George Bird Grinnell, um, people like William T. Hornaday. These were different people that, Elder Leopold, another example, folks that came to their experiences with the outdoors through hunting or at least to some degree through hunting, and then, you know, we're part of advocating for or creating or pushing through just monumental legislation that um, that got us these places. So, for example, Theodore Roosevelt and George Bird Grinnell um, were a couple guys who, of course, everybody knows Theodore Roosevelt, but they founded uh, the Boone and Crockett Club, which was a club of, of outdoorsmen and women who we're trying to stop things like market hunting. We're trying to stop the blatant misuse of our, of our resources and wild animal populations. And so they started this club, which was essentially like the first conservation organization. It was the first organization that advocated for environmental policies 
within Congress and was able to push through a lot of things, a lot of bills that essentially started the national forest system. They were responsible for that. They were responsible for most of the protections that Yellowstone got as far as keeping people from hunting in there, keeping people in there from poaching in there. They were able to stop a railroad from being pushed through Yellowstone National Park early on. Uh, like I mentioned, the whole national forest system was really um, a big part due to their advocacy. Then you get into the 1900s and folks like Elder Leopold come on the scene. He had a hunting background, wildlife management background, and he was one of the first people to push for the idea of wilderness in our national forests. This idea that, yes, there's all these different uses for these public lands, but one of those uses should be leave it alone, leave it untouched. Um, so, so many, not all, but many of these early voices within the public land and conservation community came to it from this experience of hunting. And I think that still happens today. Now, the hunting population is, is a much smaller slice of the American populace now, but hunting and fishing breeds a certain connection with the outdoors where it's, it's really hard not to become an advocate because you have such an intimate connection with the land and with the animals that give and take that I described earlier. It's so visceral. It's so physical. You can't help but have that feeling like, oh, wow, I, I, I physically literally have taken something. I have to give back. I mean, it's, it's, it's a very emotional, real thing. And so I think because of that, it's, it, it just breeds people that want to make a positive difference. And, and I think you saw that early on. And, uh, and I hope that we're seeing that again today with, with a lot of strong leaders too. Um, mm. So that, that's a little bit about how our, our um, I guess our predecessors kind of laid that conservationist framework. And, and now we need to walk in their very big footprints and try to live up to that. Yeah, absolutely. I love the the scene you describe in your book with TR and Gifford Pinchot and like they have like the maps all spread out like on the floor and they're ready yeah. to like yeah, conserve as much as they possibly can like the day before they they cannot anymore. Exactly. <laughs> I just I had that vision in my head a lot to kind of plan through that to see how yeah, just how much effort they're putting into like we need to get this done before it all ends. <laughs> yeah, and I guess I didn't, I didn't even mention right what Theodore Roosevelt was doing as president. Yeah. Um and Gifford Pinchot, I mean, yes, had a remarkable impact um on on so many things. So we're we're very uh, we're very lucky to be enjoying enjoying the fruits of of their labor then and and many other folks that carry the baton forward. I've read that there are declining numbers in, in young hunters and anglers these days. The baby boomers are kind of making their way out and the youth don't seem to be engaging as much. And please correct me if I'm wrong, but that's kind of the impression I've gotten uh, reading over some articles, watching some videos and stuff. And like you said, the sale of permits and, and licenses and stuff, a lot of that money goes towards conservation and habitat protection, so on and so forth. With So with the declining sale of these, um, what implications does that have for the future of conservation? Yeah, so you're right. Um, hunter numbers have been going down for a while now. And, and you're right, there's a lot of demographic stuff going on there. Yeah, there's also just changing demographics of our population, change where people are living. More people live in urban areas versus rural where hunting isn't as, as uh, ingrained in uh, the culture. So a lot of different kind of societal forces there that are making it um, not quite as, as, um, popular as it used to be. I think we're starting to see some things change in, in certain little bits here and there. There's, there's this strong movement across the country, right. To be more connected to your food. 
And a lot of people are realizing that there's no better way to connect with where you get your meal and your meat than by actually going out there into the woods and, and, and hunting for it. So, so we're seeing some positive things there, but yes, overall numbers are declining. It's probably something to, to, to some degree or another will continue. And, and yeah, that does pose challenges for the funding of conservation efforts because a tremendous amount of those dollars do come from hunting license sales do come from the taxes on our gear. So I think, I think the biggest, I think, you know, from folks within my community, I need to do a better job of trying to help introduce more people to hunting and fishing and, and grow that user base. But I do think that we will have to look outside of the hunting and fishing community to fund these things as well. Um, because there's a lot of other users of these public lands and these wild places. Um, but nobody else is really paying for them. So I'm a pretty strong advocate for the idea of some other kind of use tax on other outdoor related things. Um, you know, there's been a lot of debate over what some people have called the backpack tax, which is yep. essentially putting an excise tax on other outdoor recreation equipment, just like we pay for on our bows and arrows and ammunition and hunting licenses and everything like that. Why not put a little tax like that on, you know, your, your 65 liter backpack or your mountain bike or whatever, if you're going to go out there and use these places, maybe we should pony up a little bit of money to help protect them too. So, uh, you know, as a, as someone who does all these things, I feel like I'd be all for that. I'm happy to pay a little extra, you know, an extra 50 cents when I buy my new water bottle or I buy my new hiking boots or whatever. Sure. I love these places. Why wouldn't you want to help out? Um, so I think we probably at some point are going to have to do something like that. Um, there also, maybe we're going to see something where, other outdoor users need to buy some kind of permit or license to use these places too, which actually Colorado just has started something like this with their wildlife management areas. If you want to go, and I this just happened pretty recently. I've only read a little bit, so I, I might have the details wrong. But um, I'm pretty sure, as I understand that if you want to go and use Colorado State's wildlife management areas to hike or bird watch or whatever, you need to have a hunting license. Even if you're, you're not going to hunt, but you just need to buy it to be able to kind of contribute to the pool to help pay for the management of these places. So I don't know, it, you know, people don't like, uh, um, people don't like new taxes. People don't like new, uh, permits that you have to buy to do things. So it's usually unpopular, but I hope in some form we're able to find some way to, to keep these funding mechanisms in place because, uh, you know, as we've talked about a lot, None of these things, have, they've come free. None of them come by accident. It costs a lot of money to manage public lands. It costs a lot of money to, you know, fight for these places and keep them around to keep wildlife populations healthy and sustainable. And so uh, if we use them, we should be we should be doing whatever we can to give back. And and that's in time. That's in money. That's in advocacy. So, yeah, we need to figure out some funding ideas. There's there's. We've certainly had some wins recently with something like the Great American Outdoors Act, which just passed the Senate, which helps uh, permanently fund the Land and Water Conservation Fund, which is a very important pool of dollars that go to access initiatives. So that's great. We need yep. more mm-hmm. wins like that to uh, to keep this stuff going into the future. Yeah, that's amazing. I could not agree more. And I think climbers got off the hook a little bit easy here uh we kind of just buy our gear and just kind of go do our thing you know we got to pay entrance fees to parks and you know national parks and some blm areas and stuff but largely we got it we got it pretty good and pretty cheap so i personally have no problem ponying up some more money and i imagine i'm not alone there 
a few episodes ago, I had Access Fund's policy director on the show, and we discussed Access Fund's top five threats to public lands, and we discussed things about NEPA, uh, budgetary cuts for federal agencies, the Antiquities Act, and so on. Does the hunting community have their hands in the same kind of issues, or what's what's top priority for the hunting world right now? Are there other big ticket items in your community? You just mentioned the Great uh, the Great American Outdoors Act, huge win for all of us. Is there anything on your guys' radar? Yeah, I think I think that was the big big one over the last few uh, you know couple of years. I guess has been pushing the Land and Water Conservation Fund to be reauthorized last year. And then now trying to get it funded and, and hopefully that's going to happen. So that's definitely at the top. Um, you know, there's there's also a lot of things going on with individual landscapes. So you can look at something like the Boundary Waters is a, is a really threatened landscape right now, which a lot of hunters and anglers and, and all sorts of outdoor users care for. Bristol Bay in Alaska, which is the home to you know one of the last incredibly healthy salmon runs in America, and they want to put a huge open pit mine in the headwaters there, right there in this this bay, which is really fragile. Um, so it's Pebble Mine. A lot of people hopefully are familiar with that. That's a specific landscape that needs our time and attention. Uh, the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge is another one that I think a lot of folks across different outdoor disciplines know about. Um, that's an incredible wild place that a lot of all sorts of outdoor users use, but hunters too. And that is being threatened with being opened up to drilling. Um, so there's certainly these specific landscapes. There's, there's a lot of different weird things within the hunting community that are specific to the hunting community, like wildlife diseases and things like that. That's something that that people are paying attention to in our world. And then just kind of continuing to, to fight this, this, um, what I refer to in the book is this death by a thousand cuts, which is all these little ticky tack type, whether it be the reduction of a national monument size or reductions on some kind of regulation on our clean water. Um, there's so many things that can fly under the radar that are easily lost in the rush of news that impact these wild places, our environment. And so I think the challenge as hunters and anglers or climbers or anyone is trying to keep tabs and all these things because something like the great American outdoors act is really easy to make headlines and to, to rally around. And it's great that that's happening, but there's so many other things that are happening every day that uh, still have a, a impact, both positive or negative that are just tricky to stay abreast of unless you're really tapped into this stuff. So, so yeah, we've got our hands in a lot of different pots. I think, hunting and fishing community also has a unique specifically the hunting community has a unique challenge of um, balancing what we've already talked about which is protecting the environment protecting our wild animal populations but then also protecting our right to do this too because as i mentioned earlier right there's some bad apples out there that paint us in a bad light by doing some things that none of us approve of which then leads to hunting rights possibly being reduced or eliminated, things like that. So that's another thing that's kind of unique to our community that we're trying to keep tabs on. It's, hey, uh, let's make sure we're doing all this stuff in the right way. Let's be good stewards. Um, but if we do all those things, which we're going to, uh, you know, we we ask for our rights to enjoy these landscapes in, in that way too. Well, yeah, you mentioned uh, talking about all these different user groups and how this spans, how these issues span everyone. I mean, the, 
there's not climbing in a lot of these spots that you mentioned, but we should still care about them to, to a certain degree and yeah, all advocate here on the same side. So I'd like to kind of wrap things up a little bit here and talk about uh, the subject of the last chapter of your book, which is entitled joining forces. And in a previous conversation that we've had and early on earlier on this conversation, we talked about how a big part of your, your personal mission is to stress the importance of bringing all these user groups together to stand on the same sideline. And you provide several examples in the book that demonstrates the resiliency of this conservation community. So whether you're a hunter, angler, climber, skier, et cetera, this community has rallied big time when it's been needed most. So could you speak some more about the resiliency of this conservation community? Yeah, I think what you have is a lot of very passionate people. All these activities, whether it's climbing, fishing, whatever, if you do something like that, you've got a strong personal connection to that these places, these resources, these landscapes. Um, so it these things breed fired up people, right? Um, thank goodness that's the case because these places, these resources, um, they are constantly you know, being pushed and pulled and tugged from different directions, right? There's all these different people that want to use them. There's all these different people that want to take advantage of them. Um, and so it, it requires this, this, this just, um, it just requires being on alert at all times to try to make sure you can uh, stand guard. And the issue though, is that if, if we ever try to attack these things as individual subgroups, we're always going to be tiny in comparison to, big oil, big business, big whatever, big politicians. Um, it's tough to stand up to some of these threats to these wild places as just the climate community or as just the hunting community. But I think when we have had success in having some kind of big conservation win, it's because we've rallied all of these communities together. When you look at all of us together, we are an $870 billion economic engine. Nobody can turn up their nose to that. That's real. Nope. That's something that politicians and business people, that's, the, that's their language. And that gets us a seat at the table. Um, when we send not 5,000 letters from just the hunting community, but when we send 500,000 letters from everyone together on one of these issues, all of a sudden you get senators and representatives that have to open their eyes and realize, okay, wow, this is actually a group of people that uh, can make my life really difficult if I don't listen to what they're <laughs> asking for. And so, sure. you know, there have been lots of examples where folks have been able to put aside their differences and do this. Uh, I think probably the most famous example, which is one I mentioned in the book, was Theodore Roosevelt and John Muir working together on things, going out camping in Yosemite and, you know, putting aside some of their differences and saying, hey, you know what? You know, Theodore Roosevelt, famous hunter and conservationist, John Muir, famous conservationist and environmental advocate, also very anti-hunting. Um, and they didn't agree on that. That was something that said, hey, you know what? John was like, I don't I don't get why you do this, Teddy, but uh, whatever. Teddy's like, I don't get why you have an issue with what I'm doing here, but okay, we're still going to enjoy this wild place together, and we're going to do things together to try to make sure that there are public and wild healthy places into the future. So that was a very famous example, but that's still happening today. That's happened over the decades. Um, and I think what we've seen over the last couple of years is an example of, of a new version of that because coming out of this whole land transfer movement, we've seen several very clear deviations from 
I think what the normal path would have been. So what I mean by that is, say, I think this was back in early 2017, when the idea of transferring or selling our public lands was picking up steam. You had a Congress in place that uh, a Republican Congress in place that was all for it. Their, their plank, right, with their basic their political party guidelines said, hey, we advocate for getting rid of these public lands. Um, a politician, a representative came out and said, hey, you know what, here's a bill to sell 3.3 million acres of land. And it kind of caught the attention of a lot of people across the outdoor community. There was hunters, there was anglers, there was climbers, there was people from all walks of life within the outdoor world that rallied around this issue and sent emails and tweets and phone calls and, and made such a ruckus that within like a week, Congressman or excuse me, Representative Chavitz had to rescind the bill and say, hey, I'm sorry, I got this one wrong and pulled it within, it was like six days. That's not yeah, normal. I remember it. That's not a normal thing. That is because of all of us working together made our position known. I think the same thing goes for what we saw, what we're seeing now with the Great American Outdoors Act, what we saw last year with uh, the Dingle. Oh, gosh, I'm going to I'm blanking on the. uh, Oh, goodness. Huge public land package that got passed last uh, last spring. Um, Those are two really big wins that passed through a Senate that maybe has not been traditionally as. supportive of conservation or environmental bills, which got signed by a president who in some cases, many cases has not been an advocate for these things. Um, But because as a collective community, all of us together, working together, making it known that, that, you know, these things are important. These things are going to be required. We were able to get monumental, generationally important public lands and conservation related packages passed getting that land and water conservation fund permanently authorized and funded. That's something that that's a a very, very big deal. that will matter for decades and decades. And we did it underneath an administration, the same administration that did something as negative as slashing, you know, national monuments and all the other things they've done. You know, they're able to get away with some of those things unilaterally, but on other things, we were able to push through the will of the people. And, um, and I think that shows the power that we have, as a collective group of outdoor recreators versus the silos of just climbers as just hunters, as just fly fishermen, as just snowboarders. Um, I just feel like we have to, we have to continue to rally together. We don't need to agree on everything. We don't need to be exactly the same. We're all a little bit different. We all have different backgrounds when we are able to rally around a single cause and look past some of the things we have different. Um, you know, we're able to to force the issue. We were able to force the issue with Chavez. We were able to force the issue with the public lands bill package last year. We're forcing the issue right now with the Great American Outdoors Act. And we're doing this with a Senate and a president that is not normally friendly to some of these things. So it is proof positive that we can make a difference, that we're able to make enough of a ruckus to command attention and to command, you know, uh, respect for the people's desires. And um, that, you know, while there have been many things that have been frustrating over the last few years, I think this is one thing that we can point to is, as encouraging and as um, instructive for how we can keep positive things happening in the future. We can't do this just as climbers. We can't do this just as hunters. Um, yeah, I do some things that you don't do. Yeah, you do some things that I don't do. Yeah, maybe you live somewhere that's different than where I live. Maybe we go to different restaurants or different stores or whatever it is, but we all love that feeling when you're on the side of a mountain and it's perfectly quiet 
except for the birds chirping in the background and the wind through the pine needles and you know the, the sun rising over in the east. We all know that feeling walking down a trailhead with just the crunch of gravel underneath your feet and, and nothing else. We all love the sweet smell of dust and juniper, whatever it is, these things we all have in common. And I know that I, and I'm pretty certain you and a lot of other people want to make sure we can keep these places and those types of things around. And uh, we're going to be much more effective at that by, uh, by shaking hands and working together. Amazing. It gave me, gave me goosebumps because all that resonates so well with me. And there's something I associate with. And when I look at like a crag in Colorado, I see a picture of it and I can just, I can smell the pine needles and just feel like the, the rock under my fingers and the lichen on the rock that's so distinctive to the state. It all just, it, it's one big package that just kind of expands beyond just climbing the rock for me personally. Um, I think we kind of have a similar track getting into this field. I went, I went climbing in college and it was, yeah, it was like a visceral experience. I wasn't taking anything from the land per se, but interacting with it on that real intimate level, uh, just set the tone for where I'm at now. I started looking into what the Forest Service was, what the BLM was, the Park Service and the history and the policies behind all this stuff. And wow, like from where I started to where I am now, it's just, it's been a really great journey and I can't wait to keep it moving forward. And and your story really resonates with me along those same lines. So I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to chat and sharing your story and your passion for hunting and angling and conservation. I think we all can relate to, to the work that you do. And I just want to leave uh, the listeners with um, some tools or resources that you might recommend for the climbing community. Is there anything that you uh, regularly check in on and learn from that the climbers can also take from as well? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the biggest challenges is just staying informed because, like I mentioned earlier, there's there's so much going on just within this kind of realm, let alone outside in the larger news world, that it's, it's really hard to keep track of all the different issues, all the different policy updates. Um, so I do think it's important to to tap into organizations, you know, like what you guys are doing or, or other organizations out there that are trying to advocate for public lands and the environment and doing so through the avenue of certain recreation communities. So find whatever your thing is and, um, and get involved there. Um, there's a few, you know, news organizations out there or conservation organizations out there that do a particularly good job of, of informing folks, you know, like high country news is a pretty, pretty interesting um, website and magazine that does a great job of reporting on and keeping folks up to date on environmental and public lands issues. Uh, the Center for Western Priorities does a pretty good job on that kind of stuff. The Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership is one organization that works with both hunting and fishing organizations while also engaging with the rest of the outdoor recreation community and trying to build collaborative efforts towards these issues and they put out a lot of great information out there on these issues um so i'd say that's probably the biggest thing is, is stay informed and then once you you know learn about something that needs your time and attention then it's just a matter of good old-fashioned grassroots work it's making phone calls it's sending letters it's showing up on capitol hill and knocking on a door uh which which a lot of people can't do but some can um 
but you'd be amazed by what consistently phoning your representatives and senators can do. And if you rally your friends and your family members, rally your social media following, um, whatever it is, um, those things do make a difference. And the, the positive things over the last couple of years, those positive wins, again, those are, those are proof positive that that simple stuff actually matters. Oh man, so much to unpack here. Mark wanted to take that leadership role that he talked about in the hunting community and boy, he has done just that. It's, it's amazing. Prior to recording the episode, we had a kind of a pre-conversation. We chatted for a little bit and we talked about podcasting and what we do here, what we're trying to do here. And we talked about like we're trying to educate and trying to inform. We educate and inform and hopefully take people's transactional relationship with the outdoors and turn that into a more participatory one. And that really does sum up why I started this show in the first place to hopefully just make some more advocates out there and hopefully hopefully I'm doing my job that'd be, that'd be awesome it's uh it's been a challenging and mostly uphill battle you know the last four years but as we talked about we've had some monumental wins as well and that's because of people all these user groups coming together and making a monumental difference in the influence that they're putting on our representatives with the big public lands package that passed last year and being on the cusp of the great American outdoors act passing, you know, it's gotten through the Senate. We've got, we're bringing on the house at the end of this month. So get out there, contact your representatives now, write email, call telegram, fax, knock on doors, do whatever you got to do to get your input in there. Cause that's what they're here for. And that's what we're here for as well. You as an individual can make a difference in the collective. And that's what Mark really drove home here. And I hope his, his story, his work resonated with you all. You can find more of Mark on Instagram at wire to hunt, or you can check out his work at wiretohunt.com. I hope everyone's staying well and healthy and enjoying the summer season. And I just can't thank everyone enough for listening. Thanks so much. And I'll catch you all later this month. Take care.